Good morning, everybody. All right, I hope you're doing well today. I'm glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the uh, letter. Uh, we call it a book as well, but we call it a letter to Colossians. You can turn to Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 3 and 4 as we round out this series called Counterfeit. And uh, I had to uh, laugh at the beginning of the first service because uh, I, I went back. We weren't here last week, and Justin preached on, on chapter 2 and 3. And I just want to thank um, Justin for uh, a great word that he gave. Absolutely great word that he gave, except I have to correct one thing that he said. He said it at the end, and he talked about how orange is better than red and Tennessee is better than Georgia. And that is not biblical. It's not true. That's false doctrine. So I just cleared that up. <laughs> and uh, I think he told some of you to wear orange today. And so in the first service, there was a lot of orange peppered in. And so I'm just going to... You know, chalk it up to it's the time of year. Okay, so anyway, so we got a big game coming up, um, and, and uh, Georgia and Tennessee next week. Uh, so go dogs. Anyway, we need to hit the Bible. Colossians chapter three. Uh, we have been talking in this series uh, about this letter that Paul wrote to a church that was located in a, in a city in the first century that was really beginning to be swayed and pulled by a group of people that wanted them and encouraged them to have this behavior that acted like they were super spiritual and acted like it was a behavior that was really kind of in place and a lifestyle that was in place to impress rather than to be worthy of God. And so Paul really begins and kind of talks about in this book called Colossians, kind of breaks things down a little bit and essentially says that the thing that is preeminent, the thing that is over all and in all is Christ. He is the center of everything. And it's kind of like his way of reminding this church, and I believe reminding us to today, that he is the center of everything. And so he kind of goes through this process of talking about beliefs and, and what we are on the inside and how that is the thing that really sets us up for behavior on the outside and that what happens internally is of great value and greatest value and it really determines what we do with our lives. And so the past couple of weeks, we have been talking about this particular letter and why Paul wrote it. And just as a way of review, we talked in week one about what we believe is important, that knowledge isn't the center of everything, that biblical knowledge, biblical doctrine is the centerpiece of everything. We talked about what we believe about God is vital, and what we believe about God determines what we do with our lives. In week two, we contrasted living a lie with living alive. And we said that living a lie is when we seek to, to uh, you know, have our own ambition and we seek to prove something to ourselves and what we want to do, our own self-interest is important. Uh, having spiritual achievement to impress others is important. We're living a lie when others are, are who we're trying to impress. We live alive, we live alive in our lives as Christ followers when we're captivated by Christ and by uh, making sure that what we believe on the inside determines our behavior. And last week, Justin talked about this idea uh, that, that relationships in the heart is the most important thing. And the fact is, is that following a list of religious do's and don'ts 
isn't the most important thing. And in fact, it's really not an indicator of what's happening on the inside. I want to just quote a couple things that Justin said that's not Tennessee related. Uh, He said this. He said, uh, what we know and understand influences how we behave and live. And that's the central message of the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 of this letter. He also said, focus on your beliefs, and that will lead to behavior, essentially, that's worthy of God. And so today we come to this third chapter, the end of the third chapter, the beginning of the fourth chapter of this letter. And I think that Paul is beginning to kind of change things right at the end of this letter because so far what he's talked about is all internal. It all has to do with uh, the, the relationship that we have, this vertical relationship that we have with God. And, and what he's doing essentially at the end of this letter is he's turning it and he's saying, okay, now that you have these things figured out, now that you have this foundational faith, this foundational piece of knowledge, this foundational truth, this foundational belief, now let's talk about how we deal with each other. And here's the thing, church, we live our lives with our eyes closed to the world around us if we think that our relationship with God is just this and it doesn't affect this. We're living with our eyes completely blinded by some kind of selfish interest if we think that the relationship that we have with God is just a vertical thing and doesn't have any impact on this, on the horizontal relationships that we have with each other. And we're not going to take a close look at it, but right kind of in the, in the middle of, uh, of chapter 4, Paul says in Colossians 4, chapter, or, or, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, he says that we need to be watchful, and he says that we need to pray being watchful. And I think one of our problems, especially in this day and age, is that we can be consumed and we can make our relationship with God be all about us. And it becomes something that's very, very selfish. It's like we're living with our eyes closed. More than one medical study that's been done on newborns and the importance of a newborn having certain things that happen within the first few hours of its life. And experts say that one of the most important things for the future of a, of a newborn, of a baby, is that it makes eye contact with its mother as quickly as possible. Most babies make eye contact within about 20 minutes of its mother. But it's really interesting because a, a baby's eyes may open and, and, you know, within those first 20 minutes, and they say that it really fires a lot of things in the brain that really helps its future. But here's the amazing thing. A, a newborn, a baby, when it's inside the, the mother's womb, it begins to have eyesight within the womb. It begins, in fact, to have eyesight early on. Retinas begin to develop in week eight of pregnancy. I want you to think about that for a moment. That's incredible. A baby will begin to see light by week 16. Some babies, if you put a flashlight on the mother's tummy, will kick and punch. Sorry, ladies. Um, By week 22. And by week 28, a baby can fully open his or her eyes, and they can even blink when they're awake. See, we were... We were created for connection. And it's amazing to me that God, the creator, created our lives, the human life, with this, uh, like, you know, ability, this need, but ability 
to connect with someone else. And as soon as that baby connects with its mom, so many things begin to happen in the brain. And I wonder if, spiritually speaking, we just walk around sometimes completely blinded in our lives. Not realizing that what we believe is going to affect how we look at the world and how we treat the people around us. Today we're going to look at selected verses in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Some of them are going to be very difficult. Some of them are going to be hard to understand. It may seem like this is heavy-handed. Some of it is. But it's important. And it's the truth part of what Paul is writing. And I'm going to make two statements, two foundational statements. The first statement is going to point us in one direction. The next statement is going to point us in the other direction. The statements are going to sound similar, but there's a big difference, and it really has to do with who we're interacting with. And I think Paul writes this very specifically, inspired by God's Holy Spirit this way. Here's the first statement. Right beliefs about God lead to a right heart towards God. We've talked about that these past few weeks. It leads to a right behavior that's worthy of God. That's how we should live to please. But then lastly, I want you to get this. It leads to right treatment of people from God. And I think Paul writes about the inner circle. I want you to think for the next few moments about your inner circle. The people that you live with, the people that you're married to, your, your family, your children, the people that you're in the closest relationship, the friends, co-workers, those of you who are bosses, the people that you employ, those of you who are employed, the people who you work for. I believe Paul is talking at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 4, 1, about the inner circle, those who are closest to us. And so let's just dive in. Verse 18, this is going to be jarring and shocking right out of the gates. You can throw stuff at me, ladies, if you want to. I'm willing to take it. Okay, he begins by saying this, and just wait, husbands, you got yours coming. Wives, submit to your husbands. You're like, great, happy Sunday, wives, submit to your husbands, all right? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And I want to read verse 19, and then we're going to talk about it. Verse 19 says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, let's just stop for a moment, and I want to be honest with you about this word submit. If I ask you to raise your hand to how many people like the word submit, I, I doubt there'd be anyone who would like the word submit. It's not a word that is pleasing, right? And when we think about the word submit, I think what we think about in our culture and in our minds is a demand of obedience. Is that kind of the picture that you get when you hear that word? So Paul was speaking here in light of the correct truth about God, in light of the correct, correct beliefs and knowledge about what God says. Now he's talking about how we interact with each other, and he starts right out of the gates. It wouldn't be popular to write this way in this day and age. Wives, submit to your husbands. But the word submit is an interesting word in the original language. It's a military word, and it means to arrange in an order. Did you hear obey in that? Did you hear demand in that? It's a word that means to arrange in order under, and sub submit doesn't mean to obey, like sometimes we might think it does. There's also a mutual aspect to this, because as we see in the New Testament, most often when we see this 
instruction given to us, it's also repeated in Ephesians, it's linked to the second thing that's there, and that is, is that we as husbands must love our wives, Ephesians says, as Christ loved the church. And husbands, I got some tough news for you. The taller order in submitting and loving is absolutely, hands down, without a doubt, loving. It's the taller order. Because Ephesians says, Paul, the same writer, says that we should love our wives as Christ loved the church. How much did Christ love the church? He, so you can say it. You can talk back. He died for the church, right? When we least deserved it, and the word that's used for love, there's about five words that could have been used, and Paul doesn't use the romantic type of love. Sorry, husbands, if you like go home today and you're like, hey, look, I'm, I'm supposed to love you, so, let, you know, okay, romantic stuff. It's not that. It's not the buddy-buddy kind of like affection for another person. It's not that light. It's not like this, I love stuff like I love the Georgia Bulldogs. It's none of that. It's the word that he used when he talked about how deeply Christ loved the church, agape, a God kind of love that is 100% completely selfless and is not determined by what you might get before or after you love. You just love. And so it's a tall order for us all. And on our own, without the basis of the heart, without the basis of our beliefs, like Justin and I have talked about the last few weeks, and like Paul writes in the first three chapters, first half of that third chapter, we won't get this right on our own. We can't do this. Let's keep reading. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Very convicting. Children, verse 20, obey your parents in everything should be the only verse in the Bible. That's it right there, okay? I'm going to ask God one day, why wasn't that the only one there? Like, that would have solved so many problems, okay? So anyway, I'm kidding, of course. For this pleases the Lord. And so the instructions is obey. By the way, pointing out that there's a different word for obey than submit. Because Paul used a different word here. And then he goes on. <laughs> I don't like this one. This is the one I want eliminated from the Bible. Fathers, don't provoke your children, but it's so much fun. <laughs> Fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become, what does that next word say? Discouraged. Those of you who are in the ballpark of my age, do you remember the parent that could get you? Remember the, the words that could get you spun up. The things that were said that would pull you down. Do you remember that? Paul's saying, if we have this belief based on the right things of God, then we as fathers, and by the way, mothers, it applies also there, that we aren't to provoke our children. It doesn't mean that we give in. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't obey. It means that we shouldn't be the ones that are stirring them up towards anger and towards wrath. I have two of the most amazing kids. I, I, my kids have made it so incredibly easy to parent, along with all of Cynthia's effort, not mine. <laughs> They're amazing. We have a blast 
And one of the things that I love to do is I love to, to joke and to tease. And, and man, they give it right back. I mean, they give it right back. They've learned it very well. But there have been times when they've talked to me about, like, hey, Dad, it's just a little too much. There are times that I've not been the model parent or husband. And I've provoked my kids and my wife. And so Paul is saying here that when that happens, that perhaps we need to check our beliefs about God. That when we enter this, these relationships, these close relationships to us, that perhaps if we are provoking, in fact, and perhaps if we are uh, pushing towards anger, that maybe, maybe we don't have a truthful understanding of who God really is. He goes on, kind of interesting, verses 22 and beyond. He uses this word, bondservants. I told you it was going to be tough. <laughs> bondservants. He says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. What? Really? Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The word that's used here for bondservant, I want you to understand. First of all, I want you to understand this very clearly. The Bible never endorses slavery of any kind. It never endorses anything of the such. But the fact is, is that in every part of society in that day and age, a household was made up of a mom and a dad and kids and family members and a master and a servant. And while the Bible does not endorse that, I believe that it can be used as a metaphor for us to understand authority and how we should act under the authority of God, the truth of who he is. And so the Bible does not endorse that at all, but it talks about it as a way for us to understand authority. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, he'll be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partiality. And then verse 1, which Justin and I both agree that this kind of goes together because the letter was written from beginning to end as a letter that we didn't have in the original language of the chapters. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Do you see the metaphor? Do you see what Paul is trying to express and so there are a few things here, really three things. I don't want us to get necessarily hung up on the word submit or love or servant. I don't want us to get hung up on that, although there's deep meaning in each of those. I want us to think of the bigger picture, the deeper thing that God is calling us to. And I think there are three things. When we get right what we believe about God, we will naturally love well the people closest to us. We will naturally love our inner circle, well, when we get right what we believe about God. And so the thing that we are instructed to do is to not love well because we want to impress, not love well because we want to look good, not love well to get, but to love well because of what we believe about God. And the fact is, is he loved us to an extent that we couldn't even come close to measuring up to, but we should try. 
And so the first thing is we need to love well the people closest to us. I think the second thing, he talks so much about working and, and using excellence in the workplace and in our work. And, and I think when we get right what we believe about God, we work with excellence for those who have authority over us. And the fact is, is that we all have someone who's in authority over us, don't we? Even if you're retired, you have someone who's in authority over you. And so our culture and our, our, our community, we don't understand authority. I mean, wouldn't you agree that we have authority issues in our world? And that's what, that's what Paul's speaking of here. He's talking about authority, that we need to work with excellence for the one that we're working for. And ultimately, who are we working for? Who, what is our lives? Who is our lives to be lived for? It's God. It's Christ. And Him alone. And the other part of this, the third thing, is that when we get right what we believe about God, we will treat with kindness those are subject to us. We will treat with kindness those who work for us. We will treat with kindness those who, in some form or fashion, we have authority over. You know how this is played out in our world? Is those people that are serving us at the restaurants. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you realize this, but there have been multiple surveys that have been done that says that Sunday afternoon is the worst tipping day of the week. In restaurants. You know who's going to restaurants on Sunday afternoon? <laughs> Us in about two hours. No, I'm just kidding. It's not going to be two hours, like 10 minutes. <laughs> and so we leave our churches and we go into our community. And part of the, the issues that we have in our community is that we demand good service and we return something that we don't exactly like and wasn't exactly the right way. And we're like, I can't believe the service that we get in our world in our day and age. And then we don't even tip the ones that do a good job. And it doesn't matter. We should be treating people who are under our authority in that moment, in that half an hour, who are serving us with kindness and respect. Sunday ought to be the best day of the week for people who work in the service industry. Sorry, I know that's heavy-handed, but man, I, I got to tell you, it's one of the great ways that we can change the culture in this community and in our world. And it applies to those of you who are bosses, who have people that work for you. You're in a position of leadership within this community, within your business, within your workplace, in your school, in the world, in the church. And so when we get right what we believe about God, we love well, we work with excellence, and we treat with kindness. Paul goes on and he talks about the necessity of prayer. He talks about praying with perseverance, praying with diligence, praying with our eyes wide open to the world around us. He encourages us on that. And I'm going to skip down because he prays for opportunity. I want to remind you that there's a very good possibility he was writing this from jail. And he's praying for more opportunity to share the gospel. And then he begins in 5 and 6. And we're going to take a look at verse 5 and 6 uh, and, and look at what Paul was trying to encourage us as we treat the world. He says this, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So he makes a shift of talking about our inner circle. Now he's talking about how we should treat those who I believe are far from God. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's the second foundational statement. Right beliefs about God lead to a, a right heart towards God, right behavior worthy of God, and right interaction with people who are far from God. It's not just about how we relate with our, in our inner circle. It's how we relate to those people who are far from God. Maybe you have a friend that, uh, I don't know, they were following God. They were like, really, Aaron and Jesus were best friends. Maybe they had a bad church experience. Maybe they had a bad interaction with a Christian. Maybe they had a life crisis that pushed them away from God. We're not just talking about unbelievers, but I think Paul is addressing the church and saying those who are far from God, we need to have eyes wide open on how we treat those people who are far from God. Four things that I think we must do that Paul states in just these two verses. The first thing is he talks about wisdom. We need to have wisdom when we're talking with people who are far from God. Born from this, this place of, of knowledge of who God is, the truth of who God is, our belief in who God is, then we should have wisdom in how we deal with those who are far from God. And look, I, I've done this a thousand times. We try to do this on our own, right? We think we've got all the answers. We think we have all the wisdom. James 3.17 says, wisdom is from above, but the wisdom from above, it's pure, then it's peaceable, it's gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. Now, I'm going to ask a very difficult question. Do you think the world thinks that the church has operated with purity and peace and gentleness and reason and mercy and good fruits? You think they've been impart that they view us as impartial and sincere? I would say that we haven't gotten this right, church. I don't believe that we've gotten this right, and I think part of it is as we try to lean on our own understanding, we need wisdom from God. The second thing is, is when we're interacting with those who are far from God, I think Paul's saying here, don't miss the moment that we all have opportunities, and we don't need to miss the moment when he says, don't make the best use of the time. Don't miss the moment. Don't miss the moment to listen to that friend that you have that's really hurting. To maybe learn a little bit more about them. Maybe to understand where they're coming from. Don't miss the opportunity to linger a little bit in the conversation with someone who's far from God and, and, and maybe they have wildly different values and beliefs than you do and you're like, oh, I don't like what you're saying here. So many times we as Christians just, we just give up or turn our backs. And I think Paul's saying don't miss out on every opportunity that we have to walk the walk with him. Ephesians 5, 16 and 17 he says essentially the same thing. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Third thing, we're dealing with those who are far from God is that we need to use graceful and truthful words. Graceful and truthful words. 
He says that we need to have, uh, he says that we need to season our, our talk with salt. Uh, excuse me, we need to season, uh, be gracious, and, and have our speech be seasoned with salt. And so I believe that Paul is beckoning back to something we talked about in week one. When we talked about the image, he starts out by talking about the image of the invisible God and the image of who God is comes from John chapter one, verse 14. You guys probably, a lot of you probably know it. The word, that's Jesus. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. And John ends this verse by saying that Jesus is full of, say it with me, grace and truth. And as followers of Jesus, as people who know the truth and believe the truth about who God is and what he's done, our words should be seasoned with grace and truth. And the problem is, is that we have a tendency to have the pendulum swing to one side or the other, don't we? Sometimes we're just all so graceful. We're not telling them the truth about eternity. We're not telling them the truth about salvation. We're not telling them the truth about what God says about sin. And that is it separates us from God. But Jesus died so that we can have eternal life. Sometimes the pendulum swings so far the other way that all we do is truth, truth, truth. I'm right. We're right. This is right. This thing, that thing. Paul says, season speech. Season your speech with grace and truth. And I think the fourth thing that we need to do is we need to be prepared for their curiosity. Be prepared for their curiosity. People who are far from God, they're, they're, they, may be, they may have angst towards the church. They may be angry at, at God. They may have problems with Jesus and, and maybe problems with you and with me. And we need to be okay with that. Because in reality, there's something that is missing. And they know it. And you very well may have the answer for what that is. Justin last week talked about this in our lives. He said, change your condemnation to curiosity. And I love the word curiosity. I read this week in a, in a book that uh, curio curiosity is the flip side of, of, of being critical, having a critical spirit. We need to be okay that when we interact with someone who's far from God, that some of the things that we may get that's full of angst and hate and judgment on their part is just because they're missing the greatest peace. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. He doesn't say to be defensive, right? He says, be prepared to make a defense. And I believe that that is more about staying in the game with them than it is about always having the right answer. Because we can always go back to God's word to find the right answer. But if we disconnect from those who are far from God, that may be their last chance to connect with Jesus. He says we need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Do it, though, with gentleness and respect. You realize, Christ follower, church, you realize the amazing hope that you have as a Christ follower. 
in a wildly hopeless world. You have the answer for the greatest problem that we have, for the thing that we are most unprepared for, and that is life beyond this world. And the people that you're interacting with, you may be the only one who stays in that game. So church, this faith that we have, yes, it is about strengthening this relationship, this thing that we have with God, this great eyes that have been opened to his goodness and his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy and his loving kindness. And in our next series, starting next week, we're going to talk about what it means to grow in that faith and to abide with him, to be in it for the long haul and all in with him. We're going to be talking a lot about this, but we can't have our eyes closed to the world around us. Imagine with me if Hilton Head Island Community Church, if we got this right. Imagine the marriages and the families that would be restored if we got this right. Imagine what could happen in our community that, by the way, is deeply hurting if we got this right. And with his strength, with his help, we can get this right. We can get this right. Paul finishes up this book by a long list from about verses 6 through 17 of who influenced the church there. We're not going to read it. I want to encourage you to read it. He's thanking people. He's He's telling them to pray for them, and then he gets to the end. And here's where we'll land today. He says this in verse 18. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. And he says, grace be with you. And Father, today, I just want to pray for those who are here in the house. Father, for those who are listening online, or maybe on the backstage patio. Father, I pray that as we look in the rearview mirror about these first few chapters of Colossians, that really challenge us to make you the center of our world. Uh, Father, I, I pray that our, our knowledge, that our understanding, that our belief, that our faith, God, I pray that it would be rooted in you and in you alone. Father, I pray for the stronghold of anything else, whether it be something that is religious or something that is secular, something from the inside or the outside that has pushed you off the centerpiece of our lives. Father, I pray against it. I pray against any way in which we've been fooled by something or someone else. And we've put something or someone else in the forefront and the centerpiece of our lives. Father, I pray in the strong name of Jesus against that in this place, in this church. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that that right knowledge and understanding of you does have an impact on our inner circle. Help us, Father, to love to be kind and to treat those closest to us the way that you treated us selflessly. You went to the cross for us when we least deserved it. 
Father, help us to follow in your ways as the good daddy, Abba, Father. God, help us to live like that in our inner circle. And Father, help us with the understanding and the knowledge of the truth of who you are to live in a way that attracts people who are far from you, that they would be attracted to you. God, I pray right now for those who are in this room and listen to my voice in the one relationship that keeps coming to their mind with someone who's far from you. God, I pray that you would help us to, to linger, to listen, to learn about that other person. Father, not to paint a nice picture of who we are, but to always point them to you. God, I pray that we would be able to express in ways that are gracious and kind and loving and yet truthful the great hope that we have for eternity, that nothing separates us from you. God, that all things are in and through you. Father, help Hilton and Island Community Church to be a church that lives and breathes a life with each other, with eyes wide open, knowing and realizing how important it is in the way we treat each other, but also understanding how we can't do it on our own. Father, help us to rely on you. I pray for strength. I pray for confidence for our church and each Christ follower here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.